Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Richard Ovenden may be a polite and helpful librarian, but that doesn't mean he tolerates lazy thinking about his profession. One of the stereotypes of libraries is that they're remarkably calm and safe places, dull, boring even, and that librarians have easy jobs, withdrawn from the so-called real world. One of the reasons for me writing Burning the Books was to show how that stereotype has never been true, and of course it isn't true today either. From Russian missile strikes throughout Ukraine... Where libraries and archives are being attacked, or probably literally today... To censorship in parts of America. In Idaho, a librarian resigned last fall after a bullying campaign that included armed men standing in the back of board meetings. A librarian in Louisiana who received a death threat after opposing censorship said she installed a home security system, bought a taser. And... Libraries are no longer just book lenders. They're targets in the literal and ideological crosshairs. Richard Ovenden says that's an attack on knowledge and free expression. One hopes that in democratic societies, these kind of fundamental components of an open society, a pluralistic society, would be able to be maintained and defended. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Richard Ovenden knows what he's talking about when it comes to issues affecting libraries. He's the author of Burning the Books, The Deliberate Destruction of Knowledge, and he's Bodley's librarian, the head of libraries at the University of Oxford. He's quietly impassioned about the crucial role that libraries play and have always played in free and democratic societies. And in our polarized era, he's out to convince the public. We've become too complacent. We've allowed for these institutions to become battlegrounds for other political motivations. And we need to take to the barricades, as it were. Richard Ovenden was in Canada to appear at the Toronto Public Library's Freedom to Read Week 2023. The title of his talk is Libraries as Defenders of Open Society. Knowledge is under attack. Whether through malice or neglect, society today faces profound threats from attacks on knowledge, attacks that are happening all around us. Libraries and archives, institutions developed over thousands of years to protect knowledge and to help society benefit from it, are today at the front line of defense against those attacks. This evening, I would like to highlight five freedoms that libraries defend for us and why we must in turn defend libraries and archives as they are at the heart of open democratic societies. The first of these freedoms is freedom to read. But I would like to add four others to that core freedom. Freedom to learn, freedom to be a citizen, freedom to know, and finally, freedom to be who we are. 
Libraries and archives protect these freedoms, and if we support those institutions, we not only support individual citizens and the communities they live in, but we uphold and defend the very idea of an open democratic society. The role that libraries and archives play in preserving knowledge and in making it available has, over millennia, been key to the freedoms that we now enjoy, whether in Canada, the UK, or in other democratic societies. Let us first turn to freedom to read. On the 10th of May 1933, a bonfire was held on Unter den Linden, Berlin's most important thoroughfare, close to the Berlin State Library. It was the site of great symbolic resonance. Opposite the university and adjacent to St. Hedwig's Cathedral, the Berlin State Opera, and the Prussian Royal Palace. Watched by a cheering crowd of almost 40,000, a group of students ceremonially marched up to the bonfire, carrying the bust of a Jewish intellectual, Magnus Hirschfeld, founder of the groundbreaking Institute of Sexual Sciences. Chanting the Führerspruch, a series of fire incantations, they threw the bust on top of thousands of volumes from the Institute's library, which had joined books by Jewish and other un-German inverted commas, writers, gays and communists prominent among them. Those books had been seized from bookshops and libraries nearby. Around the fire stood rows of young men in Nazi uniforms giving the Heil Hitler salute. The students were keen to curry favour with the new government, and this book burning was carefully planned publicity stunt. In Berlin, Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's new minister of propaganda, gave a rousing speech that was widely reported around the world. No to decadence and moral corruption. Yes to decency and morality in family and state. The future German man will not just be a man of books, but a man of character. It is to this end that we want to educate you. You do well to commit to the flames the evil spirit of the past. These staged book burnings provoked a response among those who saw the need to defend the freedom of expression. Two new libraries were formed as a counterblast. A year later, on the 10th of May 1934, the Deutsche Freiheitsbibliothek, the German Freedom Library, was opened in Paris, founded by German-Jewish writer Alfred Kantorowicz, with support from other writers and intellectuals such as André Gide, Bertrand Russell, and Heinrich Mann, the brother of Thomas Mann. It rapidly collected over 20,000 volumes, not just the books which had been targeted for burning in Germany, but also copies of key Nazi texts in order to help understand the emerging regime. The Brooklyn Jewish Center in New York established an American library of Nazi-banned books in December 1934, with noted intellectuals on its advisory board, including Albert Einstein and Upton Sinclair. The library was proclaimed as a means of preserving and promoting Jewish culture at a time of renewed oppression. The 10th of May 1933 book burning was merely the forerunner of arguably the most concerted and well-resourced eradication of books in history, both private and institutional. It had been estimated that more than 100 million books were destroyed during the Holocaust. These attacks on knowledge were a cultural and intellectual genocide that prefigured the human genocide that would soon follow. The current wave of book banning in libraries and the broader context of censorship and constraints around freedom of expression are all stark reminders that the techniques used in Nazi Germany are once again in fashion. 
Suppressing freedom to read is a core tactic used by those who seek to exercise authoritarian control over our societies. Let's be clear, it is our minds that are the true battlefield, and libraries are a good proxy for those. As John Milton wrote in Areopagitica in 1644, for books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life within them. To be as active as that soul whose progeny they are, nay, they do preserve as in a vial the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. The Bodleian Library, which I now lead as its 25th librarian, has a long tradition of supporting freedom of expression. In the 1660s and 1670s, when the works of John Milton were banned by royal proclamation and all copies were ordered to be burned, my predecessor as Bodley's librarian at the time, Thomas Hyde, refused to surrender to the flames a special copy of his works, one that had been presented to another of my predecessors, John Rouse, the second librarian, by the poet himself. Libraries are proud to protect the freedoms of all writers who are fighting to protect their right to write and publish whatever they want to and in turn those of readers who have the right to read and to hear them. The second freedom protected by libraries is our freedom to learn. The library afforded me the means of improvement by constant study and thus repaired the loss of the learned education my father once intended for me wrote Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography of 1791. Libraries have always been key to education, going back to the earliest places of study in Christian, Jewish, or Islamic worlds. Communities across the globe develop libraries as tools for education, passing knowledge down from one generation to educate and inform the next. During the 17th century, the idea of the public library slowly began to emerge in Europe with the Bodleian, one of the first to be open to those who were not merely members of the closed community of Oxford University. In the 18th century, the idea that the library could be used as a tool for self-improvement came to the fore as a patchwork of endowed libraries, parish libraries, collections in coffee houses, fishermen's reading rooms, as well as subscription libraries and book clubs enabled more people to access useful knowledge. Libraries became a key part of a wider movement to broaden education for the benefit of the individual, but also for society as a whole. A century or more later, Sylvia Pankhurst, the inspirational champion of women's rights, wrote to the director of the British Museum requesting admission to the reading room of the library, as I desire to consult various government publications and other works to which I cannot obtain access in any other way. The modern concept of the public library one that is run by local government, free for users of the majority of its services. That idea came into being in Britain under the Public Libraries Act of 1850. There was political opposition to the idea at the time. As the bill worked its way through Parliament, the Conservative MP, Colonel Sibthorpe, was sceptical of the importance of reading to the working classes on the grounds that he himself did not like reading at all and hated it while at Oxford. The Public Libraries Act made it possible for local authorities to institute public libraries and pay for them through local taxation. But this system was voluntary. It was not until 1964 that the Public Libraries and Museums Act made it a duty for local authorities to provide libraries, and the system remains a strong place in the general consciousness today as a cherished service, part of the national infrastructure for public education. Despite this, 
Public libraries in the UK have borne the brunt of the pressure that successive governments have placed on budgets available to local authorities. They've had to make very tough decisions on how to manage, many of them targeting libraries. In 2019, there were 3,583 public libraries in the UK, compared to 4,356 in 2009-10. 773 had closed in that passage of time. Libraries in many communities have also come to depend increasingly on volunteers to remain open. This is a disgrace that the UK should allow this essential piece of social infrastructure to decline so badly. One of the stereotypes of libraries is that they're remarkably calm and safe places, dull, boring even, and that librarians have easy jobs, withdrawn from the so-called real world. One of the reasons for me writing Burning the Books was to show how that stereotype has never been true, and of course it isn't true today either. For a time, I had the pleasure of being Director of Collections at the University of Edinburgh. One of its great treasures was a manuscript of the Compendium of Chronicles, Yami al-Tavarih of Rashid al-Din, the vizier of Ghazan, the seventh ruler of the Ilkhanid dynasty. The Edinburgh Manuscript, a substantial volume written in Arabic in Tabriz in modern-day Iran in the early 14th century, was stunningly illustrated with miniature paintings of great interest, importance, and beauty. One of the images, however, features a figurative description of the Prophet Muhammad, an artistic practice not uncommon in Islamic art at the time, but subsequently rejected by some parts of the Islamic world. At work in the library one day, I received a telephone call. The person on the other end of the line instructed me to take the manuscript out of the library and to burn it, or dire consequences would fall upon me and upon the library. An example of the quiet, serene life of the librarian? The same manuscript, given its importance, was asked to be loaned by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York for a major exhibition called The Legacy of Genghis Khan. The show was planned several years ahead, and the Met agreed to play for much-needed specialist conservation of some of the pages to stabilize the miniatures. The flights were booked, and I was to hand-carry the priceless object to New York at the end of September 2001. And then 9-11 happened. Much to their credit, the Met decided to go ahead with the exhibition, even though the horrific events made the cultural associations of the show problematic. The images in this manuscript were already causing controversy in the public realm. In 1997, Oxford University Press published its Islam, a very short introduction, by scholar Maliz Ruthven, and it included one of the images depicting the prophet. By the time of the second edition in 2001, however, the press had removed the image from the book and replaced it with a text stating that a small number of readers found the picture blasphemous. Fast forward to 2022 and to the small private university Hamline in Minnesota. An adjunct professor of art history there, Erica Lopez Prata, showed a reproduction to a class of students of the image of the prophet receiving divine revelations from the angel Gabriel, which is found in the Edinburgh Manuscript. Even though she warned the class before showing the image, one of the students complained to the university authorities. They condemned the actions of the lecturer as undeniably inconsiderate, disrespectful, and Islamophobic, and she was fired. The image, however, cannot be described as an Islamophobic. It was painted by a Muslim, albeit a long time ago, in a manuscript that exalted Islam in the context of the historical events that it recounts. 
The president of Hanline University wrote a letter to staff and students saying that respect for observant Muslim students in the classroom should have superseded academic freedom. I find this an extremely troubling view to be held by the head of a university. The students were warned that the image was to be shown and they could have removed themselves from the line of sight. Other students in the classroom were entitled to view it and in so doing learn about the culture and religion that created this masterwork. The debates on the legitimacy of portraying the Prophet existed for a long time in Islam, but they have only been dominant in relatively recent times and only predominant in the Sunni branch of the faith. The British writer Keenan Malik has written about this case. In his view, it shows how the concepts of diversity and tolerance have become turned on their head. The university authorities at Hamline, in their eagerness to show how diverse their community is, have sided with reactionary views within Islam and have therefore become less tolerant as a result. With my own personal history of the image, having been responsible for preserving and for sharing the volume for a few years, I have to side with Keenan Malik. Interestingly enough, the Hamline case has prompted a clear and more nuanced response from the Muslim community. The executive director of the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations believed that showing the image was Islamophobic, but the national group disagreed. Although we strongly discourage showing visual depictions of the Prophet, the group has stated, professors who analyze ancient paintings for academic purposes are not the same as Islamophobes who show such images to cause offense. The Hamline incident and the current spate of library book banning in the US show how libraries are on the front lines of a war defending knowledge from attack. The American Library Association reports that during 21-22, there were more than 2,500 book bans in 138 different US school districts and libraries spread across 32 states covering 4 million pupils. The highest concentrations were to be found in Texas and Florida, states where the dominant flavor of politics is tea. Many of the contested authors seem so uncontroversial that their presence on these lists is a shock. Khaled Hosseini's The Kite Runner, or Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Isn't the US Constitution meant to protect freedom of speech? Apparently not. What is even more troubling than the presence of these books and hundreds of others on the book ban list is the demonization of librarians as combatants in the war for our minds. We should expect these battles to intensify as the presidential elections loom closer and closer. School librarians are required to hold master's degrees in library science as well as having teaching certificates. They are highly trained and skilled professionals. Yet many of the political challenges around book banning in states like Texas and Florida are aimed at restricting librarians or bypassing them. At their most extreme, the politically motivated legal challenges demonize librarians as being sexual deviant groomers of young children. In North Dakota, a current attempt to control what books public libraries can stock would remove all books dealing with sexual or gender identity. It's hard to imagine such statements emanating from the same. But this kind of extremist legal positioning, massively stressful for librarians, is becoming normalized in some parts of the United States. But the community is mobilizing in defense of the role of libraries and librarians as supporting freedom to read and freedom to learn. And there are many groups who are working in this way. But the irony is that the very act of banning books make people want to read them all the more. 
As Margaret Atwood, one of the most banned authors in the U.S. right now, said, go ahead and ban my book. It will only make people want to read it. The Bodleian, in its early years, actually used the Roman Catholic Index of Prohibited Books as a kind of convenient shopping list for books that the library most wanted to acquire and place on its newly built shelves. Book banners aren't very bright. We may be amused by the ironies in all of this, but it's now dangerous and scary working in a public library in many parts of the U.S. Librarians are upholding the rights of their fellow citizens to read, to learn, and to know. We must all support them and stand up for those core freedoms. This is our responsibility. Librarians and libraries are worth fighting for, and we should look back in history for inspiration and courage to other episodes why librarians, archivists, and the communities around those institutions have been willing to risk and even lose their lives for them. Let us move now to the freedom to be a citizen. We can find out what it means to lose a library. On the evening of the 25th of August 1992, shells began to rain down on a building in Bosnia's capital city of Sarajevo. These were not ordinary shells, and the building was not an ordinary structure. The shells were incendiaries. The building they hit was the National and University Library of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the shells were fired by the Serbian militia who had surrounded the city as part of the strategy of the President Slobodan Milosevic to destroy Bosnia. No other buildings were fired on this day. The library was the sole target. Librarians and firefighters formed a human chain to remove materials from the burning structure, but Serbs placed marksmen to pick them off. The relentless shelling and sniper fire made it too dangerous for all but a few of the rare books to be saved. At around 2 p.m. that day, one member of the library's staff, Ada Butorovic, was killed by a sniper. She was only 30 years old and joined a casualty of 14 deaths and 126 wounded from that day in the city. The library was the target because it was both a symbol of the multicultural community that Sarajevo and Bosnia had managed to preserve. It contained the written culture and history of Bosnian Muslims, Jews and Christians, all living together. It was also an institution for educating the citizens of the country. It had been estimated that more than half of the provincial archives of Bosnia were destroyed during the wars, more than 81 kilometers of history. Particularly targeted were land registries, which recorded the details of Muslims owning land property. The records of Muslim existence were cleansed alongside the humans themselves, or as Noel Malcolm has put it, the people who organized such acts were attempting in the most literal way to erase history. But the social importance of preserving knowledge cannot be overstated. The communities have often gone to heroic lengths to preserve our freedom to be a citizen. At the end of the Second World War, the German Democratic Republic became the front line of a Cold War. On the 8th of February 1950, its communist regime created the Stasi, the GDR's secret police, intelligence agency, and crime investigation service. It kept files on about 5.6 million people. Here are some of them. As well as written documentation, the archive has audio-visual material such as photos, slides, film and sound recordings. After the Socialist Party stepped down on the 3rd of December 1989, the Stasi became the last bastion of the dictatorship. On the morning of the 4th of December, detecting smoke from the chimneys of the Stasi district headquarters in Erfurt, local political groups concluded that the Stasi must be destroying files. A women's group occupied the building and the neighboring prison where the Stasi stored files for safekeeping. This instigated the takeover of Stasi buildings all over East Germany. 
And the unified German state then took responsibility for those records that had been saved. And when the Stasi Records Act was passed in December 1991, it set out the rights of people to view them. By January 2015, over 7 million people had applied to view their own Stasi files. The Stasi actually trained other regimes in this surveillance, including the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, led for decades by Saddam Hussein. And following the invasion in 2003, the party archives there would be removed to the United States, only to return to Iraq in 2020. I'd like to kind of contrast what happened in East Germany after the collapse of communism with what happened in Iraq. Without the records of what happened, how could the Iraqi people face up to their difficult past? In Germany, they developed an organization called the Gauk Authority to manage the access to those Stasi files. They had considerable resources, financial resources, over 3,000 staff, and able to process millions of requests. Without the funds to resource it properly, the whole enterprise would have been disastrous, and this could well have been the case in Iraq. But the archives remained outside the country as it descended into civil conflict. The Iraqi people's freedom was undermined by their archival deficit. You're listening to a talk in defense of libraries by Richard Ovenden. Ovenden is a writer and head of the Bodleian Libraries at Oxford University. He visited Canada for the Toronto Public Library's 2023 Freedom to Read Week. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Libraries may seem old-fashioned to some people, holdovers from an age before the internet put information and entertainment at our fingertips. But visit a library and you'll see they're very much of the present. There are books, yes, but also newcomer services, public Wi-Fi, 3D printers, informative events, homework clubs, and all varieties of reference help from library workers. I have a job interview on Monday. And I said, oh, a job interview, that's fantastic. She'd been applying to jobs for weeks and working on her resume for hours at a time at the library. She said, my question is, I'm not really staying anywhere stable right now and I don't have access to running water. And I wanted to know if there was somewhere I could go to take a shower today to get ready for my interview. We just never know who's gonna come through our door and what they're gonna need from us. Libraries provide an array of resources and services for communities, all under one roof. Yet they are under threat, from budget cuts, from political backlash, and in conflict zones, from literal destruction. A memorable story for me was the State Archive of Kharkiv, 
uh, the second biggest city of Ukraine. On the night of the 3rd of March, I just picked it from the list and managed to save its web archive, like 100 gigabytes. Um, and then a few hours later, the situation monitoring team actually said uh, the state archive of Kharkiv has been damaged and it actually went down and hasn't come up since. In this last part of his talk, writer and Oxford librarian Richard Ovenden describes two more ways that libraries defend our freedoms and explains why he thinks it is imperative that we stand up for libraries. The freedom to know is a key freedom that libraries and archives defend for us all. We're going through a profound shift in the way that knowledge is created, shared, and stored at the moment. As a result, public knowledge is increasingly in the hands of major technology companies, or what the great Oxford historian Timothy Garton-Ash calls private superpowers. The great biographer Robert Caro, biographer of Lyndon B. Johnson, had to read his way through thousands of boxes of archives, wading through, um, as he recalls, turning every page. But the archives of presidents of the United States or the prime ministers of Canada and the United Kingdom today are created in hybrid form. They're both paper and electronic, emails, text messages, blog posts, and, and the like, even Twitter posts. And these are subject to uh, different archival regimes to preserve them. They're not just um, historical documents. They're also repositories of legal and evidential facts, something which became clear in 1974 when Richard Nixon became reluctant to see sensitive material become part of his presidential library. The creation of the historical record of an individual's life today has to be seen in this hybrid form, both electronic or digital and physical. And this, when it comes to the papers or the documents created by politicians, has become very contentious. These documents and what's been happening recently, not just to Trump or to President Biden and Vice President Pence's removal of classified documents to their own homes, highlights the danger of treating public records without due care. It matters for the sake of an open society and for democracy. The, the risks around Twitter recently caused a number of people to think how important it is to try to preserve those uh, online records. I'm, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to speed through the last passage of my talk, which is about uh, taking us back to the Holocaust and to the city of uh, Vilna, or modern-day Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. At the beginning of the 20th century, it was a famous and renowned center for Jewish life, a city famous for its learned rabbis like the Vilna Gaon, a city full of libraries and archives for the Jewish community like the Strashun Library um, or the Yivo Institute um, founded by Max Weinrich in 1922, which documented everyday Jewish life in Central and Eastern Europe. Despite this thriving of that community, of course, in 1941, Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa and Vilna was occupied by Nazi forces. And with them came an operational group that sought to target those libraries and archives. The, the group was led by Alfred Rosenberg, one of the architects of anti-Semitism. And they targeted Jews who were forced into the ghetto in Vilna, who were librarians and archivists. And they forced them at gunpoint to come out of the city, out of the ghetto every day, to sort through their own library and archival collections, passing rare materials back to Rosenberg's perverted research institute in Frankfurt, the rest 
to be sent to the paper mills for destruction. That group called themselves the Paper Brigade, and what they actually did was to smuggle, at the risk of their own lives, each day, documents and books back into the ghetto, where they hid them in the hope that someone would come later to recover those documents as witnesses for their own community. And indeed, after the uh, Soviet forces forced the Germans out, a few of the members of the Paper Brigade had survived the liquidation of the ghetto, and they came back and recovered their documents. Those that had been sent to Frankfurt were recovered by American troops and sent to a branch of the Yivo Institute in New York. But the Soviet regime also found the recovered documents back in Vilna, the ones that were miraculously saved by the Paper Brigade, as anti-communists, and they sent the documents again to the paper mills. This time, they were rescued by a Lithuanian librarian, Antonas Ulpis, who turned the trucks round and hid them until 1989, when they could be revealed to the world once again. And we must think at the moment of our colleagues in Ukraine, where libraries and archives are being attacked, or probably literally today, The most shocking statistics relate to public libraries there. 47 have been completely destroyed by Russian forces, beyond repair. A further 158 are badly damaged, and 276 have received some damage. And our colleagues there are having to cope in you know, extreme pressure, not just the attacks on their buildings, but on their families. They're without power, sometimes without water, and other parts of uh, normal infrastructure. But they continue to innovate and find ways of supporting their communities left in Ukraine. Libraries and archives, to finish, provide a diversity of knowledge and ideas. They make it possible to face the present and the future through deepening and understanding of the past. The ideas we encounter, the histories that we understand, and the culture that we engage with help us make us who we are. But we need this pool of ideas and information to be constantly refreshed if we are to be creative and innovative. This is true not just in the case of, say, the creative fields of art, music, and literature, but more generally. The democracy that we enjoy in many societies today relies on the free circulation of ideas in order to breathe life into the questioning spirit of our democratic processes. This means, in part, the freedom of the press. But citizens need to have access to knowledge of all shades of opinion. Libraries acquire all kinds of content, and this resource allows our views to be challenged and for citizens to inform themselves following John Stuart Mill's insistence in On Liberty that only through diversity of opinion is there, in the existing state of human intellect, a chance of fair play to all sides of the truth. Why should we be concerned about attacks on our freedom to read and our freedom to know and on those other freedoms? I'd like to leave you with a quote from George Orwell, written 70 years ago in his famous book 1984, but incredibly relevant for our own era. The past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became truth. Thank you for listening. Oxford librarian Richard Ovenden with his talk in defense of libraries. He's also the author of Burning the Books, a history of the deliberate destruction of knowledge. I joined him on stage at the Toronto Reference Library after his talk and asked whether librarians have any choice when it comes to defending their libraries.
No, is the, the simple answer to that. We just, the simple act of preserving knowledge now, the simple act of being a librarian, is forces them into the battle. They have no choice in doing it. There are choices about how much or how deep they go into it, but there are some libraries in Florida right now that are completely closed, and the library staff, instead of um, serving their communities, teaching children, you know, simple tasks, selecting books, they're having to go through their entire collection, sometimes tens of thousands of books, to um, go through that censorship exercise that's being imposed on them. They don't have any choice but to do that. And certainly in Ukraine, there's not much of a choice, and that literally is a front line. And often librarians there have been referred to as warriors. How does that sit with you as a librarian? Is that a word that goes with the word librarian? Well, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, is because I wanted to get over this idea that librarians are... That, that kind of stereotype that there are dusty shelves and that librarians aren't very good at talking to other human beings. They'd much rather be in a closed room, you know, sort of poring over, over books and not actually sharing it with community. And anybody who's worked in libraries or had anything to do with libraries knows that this has almost certainly never been true, but it's certainly not true today. And that idea that we are engaged in serious matters for the sake of society um, needs to be shouted out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that's, that sense is one which I feel very strongly needs to be communicated. I understand you wrote your book just before the pandemic began, and so you've just been coming out and, and, and speaking about all this. I'm just wondering how your message has been received outside libraries. The stories have come as a revelation to a lot of people. Um, I think it's been a a stark reminder of the threats to institutions that most people take for granted. And I think it's that complacency that I wanted to help people come out of, but that, unfortunately, events like Afghanistan, Ukraine, the book bannings now are actually doing that job for me. I I should be doing another edition of the book because, unfortunately, there are so many new aspects to that threat to knowledge that are coming about all the time now. It's not a historical topic anymore. It's a very kind of current one. I wanted to address some of the the freedoms that you mentioned in your your lecture. Do, Do you see them as... Do you see the freedoms that you've outlined as transcending time and place? I think there are different aspects to them over, you know, my book covers about five millennia of history, and uh, I think it's, it's very difficult to really compare the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia or Ptolemaic Egypt with, you know, R- Renaissance Europe, the Reformation, or the, the Internet age of today. But there are some common, kind of common threads through it, that sort of human desire to organize knowledge. You see that in, you know, again, it was amazing to me to read about the excavations that are going on in Iraq and Syria in those ancient communities. Archivists and librarians four, 5,000 years ago cataloging books. Okay, they are clay tablets written in cuneiform script, but they're doing actually quite similar tasks. 
those libraries and archives were in temples. The librarians and archivists were, were priests. And you see that sort of coming through history into the Middle Ages, where the, the French national archives, the Trésor de Chartres, were kept in the Saint-Chapelle for a time in yeah. Paris. You know, knowledge was so precious that it was given these kind of sacred um, connotations. And we've, we've lost some of that sort of sense of the, how precious knowledge is. And I think it's so, again, in the digital age, we're surrounded by it. But at the same time as that um, abundance of information, it's still actually incredibly fragile. So that's the reverence of knowledge that you say that we've lost. What about the reverence for freedom of expression? The idea that libraries, whole libraries could be shut down and librarians forced to go through lists, of censorship lists, it ex- would have been an extraordinary thing. If you'd have said to me when I was starting in the profession 35 years ago, uh, I would have laughed at you. And again, we take these ideas, these kind of fundamental pillars of an open society for granted, mm-hmm. and yet they've been eroded as we've become, I think, as a society, too complacent about them. And I hope the events at the moment are going to kind of galvanize us to recognize those things that, were in, that are really important and valuable. And yet knowledge has always been attacked. So, so is it surprising to you that there have been so many attacks against? One hopes that in democratic societies, these kind of fundamental components of an open society, a pluralistic society, would be able to be maintained and defended. But again, we've, we've, we've become too complacent. We've allowed ourselves um, t- for these institutions to become battlegrounds for other political motivations. And, you know, we, we need to actually, unfortunately, take to the barricades, as it were. Of course, it's impossible for any institution or or individual to collect every single book and to archive every bit of information. How do you build a collection that is representative of the present but is also for the future? Well, I think every collection, every library is actually about the future. Every archival institution is about the future. And I think as a society, we don't know how can we move forward unless we know where we've come from how can we chart a path to the future without thinking about where we've come from you think of lots of contemporary issues for which that speaks very very true today where people are wanting to revisit earlier assumptions about the past mm-hmm. um, and, and look upon them anew with fresh eyes with a f- with more contemporary concerns yeah. And um, I think it's our job to preserve that information so that those reinterpretations can happen and we can grow and learn as a society as a result. Is it your sense that, or is it your belief that a library should also reflect the span of thinking in a current environment? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, It needs to. It's that point I made right at the end of my talk from John Stuart Mill, It's about having a diversity of opinion. Mm -hmm. We can't hold an opinion properly unless it's been challenged, unless we've read other opposing views and have reflected on them and come to a position on on those in in defense of those ideas. And who decides Or or have encountered other ideas and actually have the openness to change our minds. And who decides what the limit is to that, or is there a limit to that? I think in, in a civilized society, there has to be some limits. 
we have to draw the line at intimidation, bullying, incitement to violence, those kinds of things. But otherwise, I think we should be in all aspects of managing knowledge, if I can put it like that, whether that's in the press, in the media, or in libraries and archives, we should be open to the widest possible expression of human ideas. The West, of course, as you indicated in your lecture, is increasingly diverse and the ideological spectrum is wider. There's a greater level of awareness around injustice. How does that affect decision-making at libraries? Well, I think we need to take all of those things into consideration in everything that we do as librarians, from acquisition of stock through to the way we describe it in catalogues, the terminology we use, what kinds of place names we call cities or towns in, in the past, the way that we organize our exhibitions and public programming. All of those things have to take cognizance of those the needs for that diversity to be reflected in our organizations and celebrated and that gives us great opportunities because often in an institution like mine which was to some extent created or at least strengthened by the British Empire that poses a challenge to us but also I think an opportunity and I've certainly that's one which we have to be open to and be honest about um, in the way that we reflect on where some of our collections came from or how we've organized them or described them in catalogues in the past and to be open to new ideas and to engage and listen to um, communities for which they're directly relevant and important. Public libraries are are gathering places as you've said and they're event spaces and, and they're used by all segments of society. There has been I think we all know public backlash here and everywhere. Certain guests or events people might find objectionable or even potentially harmful. I won't ask you to speak to specific cases, but how does a public library judge the line between welcoming free expression and welcoming all library users? Well, I think librarians are good listeners. They generally tend to be good listeners, and I think we have to be good listeners to the views of all of our community when we plan events, put programs together and so on. But I think we also have to be strong in the sense that in welcoming or responding to the needs of one community that another community is not forced to attend those events. So it's not a requirement, it's not compulsory to go along to something. People have choice of what to go to. And I think our patrons have to be um, open and tolerant as well as our library staff. So much is being asked of libraries, as you say, to reflect a diversity of opinion and to be welcoming to everyone and to be bastions of free expression. Here, you know, they've been also used as food banks. In cities, other cities in Canada, they've been used as shelter for people who are um, experiencing homelessness. They offer knowledge resources, community space, and as you say, uphold democracy. Is society asking too much of libraries? Society is asking too much of libraries when it doesn't resource them to do all of those tasks. And I think that's something which I've seen in my profession. I'm fortunate I'm in a university that's well-resourced. My library is supported. um, But 
the public library that I depended on, that was transformational for my life chances, that small town on the, Ca- the Kent coast, and libraries like it across the country, libraries like it in, in Canada, I, I'm sure, are not resourced enough to do that whole range of tasks to cope with the analog past and the digital present and the future and to face all of those demands from, a, from an increasingly demanding public. But if the resources are available, should they? Yes, I think librarians have become uh, aware of their role as social infrastructure. And I think they've been incredibly adaptive, they've been innovative, they've um, seen how they can make a difference for their communities, and we should entrust them to do the things which their communities need the most and resource them properly. Just the last couple of things before we go to all of you for any questions that you might have. I'm essentially keep asking you the same question, but in a different form. But <laughs> go back to the quote that you, um, that you mentioned in your lecture, but also while we were chatting from John Stuart Mill, saying only the through diversity of opinion is there uh, in the existing state of human intellect, a chance of fair play to all sides of the truth. It's hard enough for just for societies to maintain that chance of fair play uh, to all sides of the truth. How realistic is it for libraries to maintain that in this day and age? Library staff are, it's a kind of fundamental aspect of their role, I think. And to build collections, not just in one single institution, but across multiple institutions. Librarians and libraries are good at collaboration. They work in networks, in consortia. If you as a patron want to read a particular text, they will, if they don't have it in their own collection, they'll go and find it for you and bring it to you. And I think that sort of task of serving their communities is one that librarians take very, very seriously. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning, what gives us pleasure at the end of the day, thinking that we've helped someone solve a problem or helped someone uh, gain a a, a better understanding of some issue. That task is entirely possible and we need to support those institutions and the individuals who work in them and to give them the freedom to do that job. So in this digital age, as you say, where fewer people are reading actual books, where we're living in polarized times, curiosity and complexity are taking a backseat to very strong opinions, which are peddled on social media, as you also mentioned. Do you think that libraries alone could help people rediscover the joy of intellectual freedom? Not alone, no. I don't think libraries can do that or should do that on their own, but they play a part in a civil society. They're a pillar of a civil open society alongside freedom of the press, independent judiciaries, all of those um, other things that, again, we have taken for granted for so long and that continue to be you know, unfortunately an issue now in the age in which we live. So we have to think of libraries and archives of playing that, a, a particular role, defending those freedoms that I tried to outline in strengthening society, strengthening communities and strengthening individuals. Thank you very much for taking my questions. We'll go to the audience. Thank you so much for an amazing lecture. 
I've recently been discussing with my friends the idea of editing older books that may contain language or ideas that are no longer deemed socially acceptable. I was wondering if you could share your opinion on whether books should be edited from their original form to reflect modern values or preserved in the original intended form. Could you by any chance be referring to Roald Dahl? Um, (laughs) Just to pluck a name out of thin air. I think it's slightly crazy to edit Roald Dahl to bring him up to date. You know, he was who he was. He wrote at the time that he wrote. He wrote the words that he wrote. And that should be the author's words. And if you try to alter it, you should write your own book. Um, I'm curious to know what you think of the idea of reading age-appropriate culture. Uh, I'm speaking as someone who is a former school principal. I think generally librarians tend to be good at directing their users to relevant material, but parents also have to take some responsibility in guiding their children into what is appropriate to read and and what isn't. And I think trammeling it with the law is a very blunt instrument and one which I don't think is really appropriate or necessary. We have one last question for you, if possible. Okay. And that is, it was wonderful to hear you cast librarians in in the role of heroes of, of our society in the past and of now. And I wondered when you think back who your favorite librarian of all time is. <laughs> Casanova. No, uh, <laughs> he was a librarian, um, but he's not my favorite librarian. Um, I think my predecessor, the first librarian at the Bodleian, Thomas James, you know, he did this amazing thing, which was a startup. You know, he took a, a destroyed library, the medieval library that had been destroyed in the Reformation, and built a new one, um, guided by a very heavy-handed donor, breathing down his neck and creating, making his life a nightmare. If you read the correspondence, you think, the poor guy, how he didn't strangle Sir Thomas Bodley, I do not know. Um, but he deserved kind of sanctification because of his restraint. But he built this institution which is still going strong 423 years later. And, um, you know, it started with 5,000 books and now we're up 15 million. So um, he's, he's a pretty good guy in my book. <laughs> so to speak. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us. Thank really you. a pleasure. From the Toronto Reference Library, Richard Ovenden, head of libraries at Oxford. He's the author of Burning the Books, A History of the Deliberate Destruction of Knowledge. He spoke during the Toronto Public Library's Freedom to Read Week, February 2023. Thanks to the Toronto Public Library and Sergio Elmer, as well as Idea's own Tom Howell. You can find more information about Richard Ovenden on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey. Web producer for ideas is Lisa Ayuso. 
Danielle Duval and Austin Pomeroy were the episode's technical producers. Idea's senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.